Welcome to Influential She, the podcast about accelerating the influence of women in the world. You will find us to be a fresh voice in an old conversation. And here we are, your amazing co-hosts, Deb Sohol and Mel Shop. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Influential She. This is our conversation about accelerating the influence of women in the world. I'm your co-host, Deb Soholt. And I'm Mel Shop, and we're just excited to be here today. Um, it's a beautiful day in both parts of our world, and we are going to talk about a high-leverage practice that um, we are very familiar with, as well as our guest, and that is the high-leverage practice of voice. I, we, we use this byline on and off about developing individual power by using your voice to listen, thinking, and others. Uh, and that is going to be something that um, our guest today, that's what she does for a living, actually, is helping us out with that. So really, when we think about voice, one of the things that we've talked about, Deb, is that a lot of times it's tempting for people, particularly in today's world, to raise their voice and not their words. You know, that's just really what people tend to do. If they want to get heard, I'm going to get a little louder, but they don't think about what they're saying. That is just absolutely so true, Mel. And we just see it, you know, which ends up just putting people into polarized corners, and it's just really difficult to hear each other. And so when we think about, you know, in our careers and, you know, where we started to really see our influence grow is when we were really able to use our voices to that point of eliciting thinking in others. So how do we become more gracious in, and thoughtful in how we use our words so that we can really end up moving what it is that is a passion, you know, something that we really want to see happen. And the, in all the clutter and all the noise that's going on right now, I think this idea, and we're going to get into this with our guests because, you know, really this, she started out with listening, deep listening, which then led her to really find her voice. And so it's a really interesting and exciting story, but that's what we need more of is raising our words and also deeply listening to other people so that our words are connected in a way that is authentic in building a new and positive relationship. So I just really want to get to our guest because she's she's like a rock star and a super friend of ours and someone that we just absolutely love being in conversation with. So I want to welcome to the show Lori Walsh. She is the lead producer and host of In the Moment, which is South Dakota Public Broadcasting News and Culture Broadcast. But but she has had, you know, over six years in public radio and over 6,000 guests on air, including us, and has created space for us as influential she to be a part of her in the moment on a monthly basis right now. And so we're just having a blast talking about how to accelerate the influence of women and men that are listening because our high leverage practices really um, apply to both. She's just not only someone with just an incredible voice that just brings all kinds of topics to the fore, but a writer, a teaching artist, a member of a national book critic circle. And then I also love that she's a part of Children's Book Society and, you know, really creating storytelling for the youngest of people in our culture. So welcome to the show, Lori. We're so glad that you're here. I'm so excited to be asked. <laughs> well, it's we a just very became, quick yes. <laughs> we just became fast friends. I don't know. There was something about, um, I really got to know Lori when I was working in politics and she would bring me on the show and she's also in the district that I represent. And so I was just like really feeling, 
you know, like it was really important that I act with integrity to get her vote and maintain her vote. But <laughs> instantly we were pals in the studio. And then also she just instantly bonded with you, Mel, as the Secretary of Education in the state of South Dakota. So this has been a, you know, the trifecta between us. <laughs> and we're just really excited to have you on board to rap about this high leverage practice of voice. So I got to interrupt so, just really well, quick. Yeah, just, go ahead, I, I got to interrupt because it, it's a little intimidating. You know, we were pretty excited the other day. We had 60 podcasts under our belt and she's had 600 shows. So this is what she does. 6,000. Six oh, 6,000 shows. Yeah, 6,000. Yeah. 6, yeah. We got, yes. we got, yeah. I know, but we've had yeah. 60. So it's a little intimidating, <laughs> number one. But also the shout out I have to do before we get into it is, you know, what the very first thing, Deb, that we were able to do publicly was on Lori's show. And so I remember us going Absolutely. into the studio, introducing ourselves. And so you've been with us since day one, and we just are really, really thankful. So I had to put that in there before we start today. <laughs> and don't and I do I love the synergy that we've had since the beginning. And I think it's also a good side message to say who represents you in your district. Um, <laughs> because yeah, Deb represented District 14. And right. that was the first time I was like, I need to know who this person is. And I have a child in the school district who's now graduated. Um, you need to know who the Secretary of Education is. Pay attention to the leaders in your state and in your community. Get involved. And they might end up being your friends. <laughs> That's the best Well, part. and, you know, and we were like, we can professionally link, but we also just simply think yeah. this is the grooviest woman to hang out with. So we're so <laughs> glad that you're here. So, Lori, mm-hmm. let's start with, you know, you've talked about, we're going to get to the point where you're with a microphone and you're really up front and center and using your voice and being comfortable creating these larger conversations with people. But it really began when you talk about mm-hmm. cultivating this high leverage practice of voice within you. It was about, you said it was about your childhood eavesdropping. Yeah. Take us there and talk about <laughs> what that did to start to germinate being able to use your voice in this way. I um, was a very sensitive child. As many hours as I have spent talking and telling stories and hosting a show, you'd have to triple, quadruple, I don't even know, ten, tenfold the number of hours I have spent listening to people without opening my mouth. And most of that is like podcasts <laughs> or, you know, listening to a session committee talk. But when I was little, I was a really pro eavesdropper. So I was very sick when I was a little kid. I had croup, which back now you just give someone a steroid and they're fine. But back then um, I was in a little, I had to go to the emergency room a lot. And they would put me in this little crib surrounded by plastic sheeting. And there was a humidifier in there. And I just, I couldn't breathe very well. My mother, you know, I have a in my scrapbook, the the hospital visiting hours brochure and adults were just never allowed. There was like maybe one hour a day when my mom was allowed to come in and I was a toddler. So finally, my parents had enough of this and my father, um, we had bunk beds at home or he built bunk beds, I don't know. And he mm-hmm. made his own croup tent at home for me so I could have this recovery at home. And so on the bunk beds, he surrounded it with plastic sheeting And I had this little space all myself with a humidifier. And I remember eating French toast and reading books. But people would forget you were in there um, because it wasn't very, you know, it was opaque. So I would just start listening to everything that they said. And I was sick. And so I couldn't really talk all that much either. 
So I became an eavesdropper and hide behind the couch and listen to a conversation, hide under the table, listen through doors. I was just really that kid. (laughs) And then I got to where I would start writing down the conversations. You know, I would get a notebook and I was just determined to, as I got older, figure out how to capture those conversations. So I would remember them, write down those stories. To this day, I don't know if my anyone in my family knew I was doing it and they were tolerating it. I don't think so. I think that will be news to them. But um, they thought I was outside playing. And really, I was just listening to their conversation for hours and hours on end. <laughs> I never got tired of it. <laughs> we so, had no TV. What can yeah. I say? So, Laurie, what did you do with that, though? You know, you listened and you became an avid, you know, way in which you're listening. But where did it, how did that influence you? Obviously, um, it was really important to you. By the way, you should write a book about that. You probably have these great <laughs> memoirs on conversations. Yeah. I'd be really curious. Only that. Um, I'm very proud. I, I won't spill the dirt on the family. That's the oh, other okay. thing. Yeah, I'm just very good okay. at not telling people what they didn't want me to hear. Well, professionally, of course, I grew up and joined the Marines and became a spy. So we'll get to that. But the what I did as a child was it it helped me understand. I didn't have the kind of family that you could sit down. I think most of us growing up in this area didn't necessarily have the family that you could sit down and say, Mom, Dad, how's your relationship? Tell me about it. I'm six. You know, that would not have been for kids. You know, children at the dinner table, you know, we talked, but you wouldn't necessarily be the center of the conversation. Nothing wrong with that. Just, and I wanted, I wanted more than that. I wanted to know what was in my parents' hearts. I wanted to know. So I used it as a child to get to know them. I used it to understand what they were afraid of, um, what they loved, how they felt about each other in ways that they wouldn't necessarily tell me. And I could make sense of the words. You know, the actions I couldn't, you know, I I wasn't as good at picking up, you know, how do people love each other by doing things for each other. But I was very, you know, my love language would be words of affirmation. I was very good at understanding the subtext of, and it made me feel less lonely. We lived out in a rural, rural part of Northwest Iowa for a long time. We moved. Uh, My dad was in construction. He wasn't a farmer. So we didn't have a social circle that was in agriculture. And we often felt isolated. So to sit with the only people that I had access to, which was my parents, my older brother, um, and to just listen to them was how I got to know them and how I got to know what it meant to be human. And then when we went to aunts and uncles or cousins or grandparents' house, I did the same thing and I learned even more. Or I'd eavesdrop on their TV. If they were watching TV, then I would eavesdrop on the news, the things I wasn't old enough to listen to yet. So, Laura, you brought up this this point of deep listening as a part of really accelerating your influence through voice, because it isn't just about talk, 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 talk. It's Mm -hmm. also about, and I think when you talked about, you know, it was finding about how did my parents love each other? Like, how did they really care for each other? Talk a little bit about how you then translated, we're going to get into you being a spy in the Marines in a minute, but (laughs) you know, for now, like, how do you see that skill that you cultivated helping you now where you're bringing what people would more traditionally think of as voice through a microphone? I think, and this does tie in to spying later with, you know, I started out listening to the people who loved me. And then I moved on to listening to people who I was supposed to be afraid of. 
or who I, the enemy, that's who I'm listening to as an adult. And there were similarities of humanity in all. My parents were afraid, just like I was. My parents, you know, cried just like I did, even if they didn't do that in front of me. Um, by eavesdropping, I could hear gossip. <laughs> I could hear what they <laughs> thought of me. I could hear when my older brother was in trouble. I could hear what they were worried about. Um, and I could hear just them. There was a deep contentment for me to just hear them talking about nothing. The weather. And so in some ways, what I took from it was that no matter how upset you get or how heated things might be, we almost always default to caring about each other. We almost always default to once the voices aren't raised anymore, just being in companionable silence or just returning to the words, you know, I love you or just them showing up. They were there. It was consistent. I knew how my, my parents were always there because I could hear them talking. And so I think for me, it helped provide a stable foundation. My home life wasn't always perfectly stable, but if I listened carefully, I could tell that it was. And so I was less afraid in the world because I knew everything was going to be okay. Even if my mom and dad fought, um, the next day I would hear something else and I could hear that they loved each other still. And I was, as I said, sensitive, scared, would have nightmares about the end of the world I would have nightmares about, you know, if I, I'd walk down the, the gravel driveway and if I kicked a rock, I was sad that I had separated it from its family. So I'd pick the rock up and I'd put it back, you know, in its original space. So I was that kind of child. Like everything scared the daylights out of me. Everything had life. Every stuffed animal was alive. Every, you know, I was just very in tune to a world of magic. And hearing my parents talk was just deeply, deeply comforting that they were there and that everything was going to be okay. So how did this sensitive, caring child decide to join the service and go into something that was not as safe, obviously, or potentially, you know, you're putting yourself in a new environment that's completely aside from the confines of what you've been in. How did that happen? And what, what gave you the impetus to do that? I think because I had a stable upbringing and was loved, then I had a sense of adventure when I was older and I was ready to leap off and do something adventurous. My father had been a Marine. Um, we didn't have money for college. This was in 1987 when I joined. So before the Gulf War, before 9-11, um, there was a time when you joined the military, you know, for the GI Bill and, you know, for, I want to travel, I want to do something fun. It wasn't quite like, I know this is dangerous. I mean, certainly I wanted to serve my country and I was ready to do that and I was ready to put myself at risk. But I have such tremendous respect for people who join now, knowing that the chance that they're going to be in a dangerous situation is like, you know, 90%. <laughs> Back then, I either that or I just didn't think about it. I just didn't occur to me that it would be risky. I didn't know anything about what it would be to be a female in the Marine Corps. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was young and excited and I wanted to travel and I wanted to get my education and I really wanted to go to college and that just was not financially feasible for my family. So um, my dad wanted me to get a tech school degree of some kind 
which at the time I thought he meant like air conditioning repair. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Do you know me? <laughs> but in retrospect, I think he thought medical field, you know, being extra, go in radiation or you know, uh, radiology or something like that. And I just, I was not interested in that at all. So I went down and talked to the recruiter and I signed up to be a journalist. I signed up to be in, I thought I would be a war correspondent. <laughs> and I wanted to go into the field and tell the story of people who were serving their country. Probably because I, you know, wanted to tell my dad's story in a lot of ways too. So you talked about, okay, I didn't have any idea what it was like to be a woman in the Marines, yeah. like in the 80s. So talk yeah. about the journey of finding voice within that environment. So the wonderful thing and the bad thing about the Marine Corps at that time, and I don't, I think the Marine Corps is just now, if in the last year, like 2020, 2021, I think, they've sent their first females to San Diego to integrate. When I went through boot camp, I went to Paris Island, South Carolina, and it was 4th Battalion is where all the women Marines go through. So it was a very small group of people. And, but the positive at that time was, you know, you were treated like a Marine recruit. I mean, you had, you were treated like you would expect to be treated. It was very difficult. It was very um, physical. It was very verbally abusive. It was all the things that you think Marine Corps basic training would be. Uh, you know, we ran the confidence course and we shot weapons and we, you know, we didn't do hand-to-hand combat. We did um, self-defense. We had makeup class and we didn't, there's one other thing that we didn't do. Wait a minute. I can't remember. Makeup yes. class? Like real yes. makeup? Makeup? Real makeup. We had to sit. <laughs> and that I is wasn't exactly, sure I heard you right. <laughs> yes. It's exactly what you would think because it's part of your uniform. That's the argument. Like you have to learn how to press your uniform and, you know, put everything in the way it's supposed to be with regulations. And there are makeup and earring and jewelry and hair regulations. So we had to be trained. But seriously, we sat in this like classroom with, you know, makeup Barbie or whatever, you know, a a model in front of us that we had to put makeup on her to show that we knew. And then we had to put makeup on ourselves and show that we knew how to follow these regulations. And we had brought makeup from home and I had brought um, my favorite lipstick was called Zinc Pink. And it was like my flesh tone, like super pale, like light, light pink. And they're like, no, you can't wear that. That looks good on you, but that's not, it's two 1960s. Like that is not regulation. And so I had to throw away my zinc pink lipstick. <laughs> and for our photo in our platoon, so that we were all uniform, we all had to wear the, you know, because I take a group photo, we all had to wear the exact same makeup, no matter our skin tone. So we had girls like me, who was just about the whitest light lightest skin person you could have to the darkest skin women and they had to pick a lipstick that would somehow look good on all of us um so in my basic training picture i'm wearing it's just this audacious red lipstick that does not <laughs> quite look good on me <laughs> i was maybe so the okay so you were you were no. separated and segmented really from yeah. the men but at some point you're coming together to do this work. And yeah. was it difficult to find voice as a woman then when you weren't really in the same kind of boot camp situation? Or how did that all go? So in basic training, one of the things we had this, they picked when we got there a guide and squad leaders. And I don't know how they picked that. I wasn't selected. 
And our guide was this wonderful, strong, powerful woman from New York. She was a little older. I think she was like 27. So she was mature and she was fabulous. She was fast. She was a really fast runner. And one day, like she could run faster than drill instructors. And one day they had a race and she won, but she blew out her knee. And so she was injured and couldn't be the guide anymore. And instead of renaming a guide at that point, they shut the door to the DI hut and they let us decide who, without really telling us who was going to be in charge and 60 women. Well, I don't know. You want to do it? Do you want, I could do it if nobody else wants to do it. I mean, like you had this sort of like hemming and hawing and part of your job, you know, you had to memorize these certain things. Like, you know, the guide's going to go up to the DI hut. They're going to knock twice. They're going to count off the platoon. They're going to report, you know, attendance and you just, there's a ritual. Well, of course I've been paying attention and I, you know, I knew what was going to happen. So one girl was in the center and she was like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I could do it. I was like, I'll do it. And so I just, went out to the center and she went back to her line and I don't think she's very happy with me. I still kind of feel bad for her. But at the same time, I was like, if you're not going to do this, don't do it. You know, like, I'm not going to tell you that it's okay. We're all equals here. And I went up to that DI hut and I knocked on the door and they had no idea who was on the other side of that door. And they opened it up and the drill instructor looked at me and said, huh, And that's how I became the guide. So I had to speak up. I had to be the person who was willing to go up and take a chance. And I was the guide for the whole second phase of of Marine Corps basic training. Then I went to um, Monterey, California, where I had my school. And that's when I was the only female then. Because it turns out I was one. I, I signed up for journalism. And then in boot camp, they opened up this field of intelligence to women. It had been close to women. And I was taken aside and there was a male drill instructor and he said, you know, you, your aptitude qualified you for this. I had taken what's called the defense language aptitude test. I had done really well. And he said, um, you know, do you want to do this? But you signed up to do something else. So you have to sign a waiver. I had no idea what to do. You can't ask anybody, you know, and I was looking straight ahead like you're supposed to do. And he said, he looked at me, he said, look, private, look at me. And I looked down at him. He said, you want to do this. (laughs) That's how I became a linguist. And so I signed up and I became a a cryptologic Korean linguist and went to Monterey to the Defense Language Institute, where I was completely surrounded by men for the first time. And that was just a huge adjustment because many of them had been to San Diego. They didn't even know women were in the Marine Corps. This is before a woman named Paula Coughlin um, had been through the tail hook convention and had gone through a gauntlet and had reported something that they eventually called sexual harassment. So there was no concept of what that meant. Um, They didn't have a room for me to stay in when I arrived. They didn't know where they were going to put me. There was no other women. They didn't know how they were going to, you know, protect me if they needed to protect me. Nobody wanted me there. And it was just a very long, (laughs) long, arduous two years. Um, and again, I went back to, to shutting up and listening for a long period of time. I didn't have a voice. I, I listened and I watched and I found friends and um, just one step at a time tried to figure out how to navigate it. I wish I'd had the Influential She podcast to <laughs> 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 accelerate my influence. But for quite some time, I had no influence. I was just trying to survive and not go home. I was sick. I'd had a surgery. 
Um, it was a very, very difficult time, you know, to go through. Did you find advocates amongst the males that were there to, I, I mean, I'm just really curious about that period when you said it's difficult, difficult on all ends or. Yeah. Um, we had the male Marines, you know, you gotta think these are 18 year old Marines from all over the country. True. There's not a lot of maturity there. Um, they had been, they're kind of known for making trouble. So they had gotten in trouble in the air force barracks with women. So there were no women allowed in their barracks and they were not allowed as Marines to go in the army, Navy or air force barracks, um, which applied to me too. So I couldn't have any women in my room and I couldn't go there. So I, the only friends I could have were male Marines. And fortunately that's how I survived as I found, you know, one at a time, you know, this one, you know, I can still, I can still name them all. (laughs) And some of them are still my friends, you know, friends who said, I will show up and, you know, stand up for her. But mostly, you know, I was subjected to just a lot of people who would say the opposite. You shouldn't be here. Why are you here? There was nobody who said, oh, she should absolutely be, you know, there was no fighting on my behalf. I just, I just made some friends and that was a very good thing, but it wasn't for years that I learned how to lead in the Marine Corps. Um, Certainly not for the first two or three years. So when you talk about, you know, just going back to your skill of listening, starting to look for Mm -hmm. patterns and words and, you know, just because I think that is that's a big thing about building influence that if you can start to, instead of being so offended, go into this space of, I'm just, I'm listening and learning and I'm surviving. And that's the space that I'm in right now. When did that start to shift for you, Lori, in the Marines where you then felt like, all right, now it's time to start exercising using my voice again. I think one of the first times for me was, um, we, um, Here's another good example of, of listening and not using your voice. So 1990, I'm guessing it is. I'd have to look back, but the Gulf War starts building up, right? Um, Saddam Hussein goes into Kuwait, and we have this idea that this is our situation has now changed. I'm in Hawaii at First Radio Battalion, and I just can't wait to go. You know, I'm a Korean linguist. I have no reason to go to the Gulf, but they train us as um, Humvee drivers they say, don't break in the sand. You can do guard duty. And I am just every day I'm asking, you know, when can I go? When can I go? Using my voice, using my voice, using my voice. And my father calls me and he's a Vietnam veteran. And he said, you already volunteered. Put down your hand. You don't want this. You don't want to go to war. And I was like, oh, but I thought I was you know, I was being brave. I was being a Marine. I was being patriotic and, and just my father's wisdom at that moment to say, they can take you if they want to, like, you're not hiding from anything. They already know where to find you. Stop going to the office and telling them that you want to go. So I never went to the Gulf and I'm glad I didn't. The, um, the medical problems that many Gulf War veterans have, um, are terrible. And I'm very glad that's not something I have to unpack in my life. I like to be an advocate for those veterans. I'm glad I don't have to sort through my own physical challenges because of what they went through. I got sent instead to the Philippines. And when I was in the Philippines, now I'm you know, 20, I'm 20, I turned 21 in the Philippines. And that is another place where I think I really found 
um, my voice for a lot of the Philippine uh, women who were in the sex trade there. It was a very difficult environment to be in. So right outside, I was at Subic Bay Naval Air Station. And right outside the base in the city of Alangapo was just, that's what people went to Alangapo to do was, was prostitution. A lot of young women. And you know, there wasn't a whole lot I could do. There wasn't a whole lot I understood about that. Um, I came in with certain ideas about who these women were that turned out to be racist ideas and sexist ideas. that I didn't know um, who these people were. And then I met some of them. And I went to their neighborhoods and I went to their houses and I saw their children who were left behind after, you know, a service member had gotten somebody pregnant and then abandoned her. And I remember going to this woman's house and her son had like chicken pox scars all along the soles of his feet. Like he had had chicken pox and he was just, he was just scabby. His whole little body was scabby. And so in a very small way, I was able to start talking to my male Marine friends about their behavior and what they were doing, why they were doing it. Um, rethinking some of their thoughts about, they thought they were fueling the economy and um, that was a good thing. You know, these women needed money. And I was like, well, so give them money. Like you don't have to get anything back <laughs> from the, bring them supplies from the PX, you know, do things to help them but you don't have to do that. I boycotted, you know, we had, um, it was a boycott of one, but we had like some shows, you know, some, uh, they invited girls to come up from Angeles city to perform, you know, in some sort of, you know, strip tease or sex show. And that was supposed to be entertainment. And I refused to go. And that was the first time that I started really realizing that women needed to, even if nothing happened, it mattered that I wasn't there. It mattered that I said something, um, even if I couldn't make a change. And now in my work today, I still very much am invested in telling stories of missing and murdered indigenous women, largely because of that experience of seeing how women of color were treated in the Philippines as if they were scraps of garbage and, or jokes. Um, and if there's one story that I'll probably do till the day I die, it's, it's that story. How do you take an entire group of women and get people to rethink what they are for? And how do you do that in a way that elevates their voices, not your own? Um, that's pretty heavy there. But that's, I think, the first time that I remember thinking, this might not go for well for me, but I cannot be silent. I cannot sit and just listen to what everybody's saying anymore. I have to speak up. So, I mean, Lori, wow. that's just beyond powerful because um, many times it's it's difficult to step aside and be be the lone voice in whatever way. Yeah. So take that experience and where did it move you? Uh, because obviously, I can still see the emotion, hear the emotion. Um, in that moment, in what you did, had to have a big piece of impacting you going forward. And so, what was the next step, and how did you, um, yeah, and where'd you go from there? Yeah, I think to jump ahead, you know, I got out and I studied journalism at Augustana. Well, I studied, I went to college at Hawaii Pacific University for a few years, and then I transferred to Augie in Sioux Falls when I was um, honorably discharged from the Marines, and I, um, you know, became a journalist. And I was a, I was a print reporter. I had my daughter, 
And after she was born, I just really wanted to write and write, 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 write. So I stayed home with her as a, she was my excuse to be home in a lot of ways. Like, oh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. But in the meantime, I was a writer and I could just kind of pass that off as (laughs) spending your day well, um, because I wasn't getting paid anything. And I think this is important because when we talk about voice as like a physical thing, like your actual voice, I would not be in radio today if I hadn't read to her. In fact, if you ever hear me sort of default to, because on NPR and South Dakota Public Broadcasting on public media, you're supposed to sound like yourself. You're not supposed to have like a, you know, a performative voice. That's one of the great things about um, national public radio and about public radio in general is we sound like us. You don't have to put on airs. Um, if you have an accent, that's fine. If you have a name that doesn't make sense to other people, that's fine. Be you. Um, but still, it's very hard to just talk to people and hear yourself, you know, at the time. But I had spent, uh, we read, we read children's books, we read poetry, we read, 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 read. So the first time I sat down in front of the microphone and heard myself in my headphones, I was like, oh, I've been listening to myself for, you know, years now. <laughs> been talking to myself (laughs) for a really long time and so again going through that phase of being quiet and stepping back and doing a lot of listening to the world and then at the time when I was writing I was writing I did a lot of stories for the Argus Leader magazine um, and profiled a lot of women a lot of successful women and most of those I was in my 30s they were often in their 50s or 60s and they were successful women And I got to ask them whatever I wanted and they would just say the most remarkable things. And I just wanted to be them. So I was like, I want to be so sure of myself. I want to be that confident in anything as some of these women are. And so when I look back at a lot of those profiles, I think those women, just by being generous and opening their lives to me, changed my life forever, really. I mean, they're doing what you do, but it's never recorded. And so when I wanted mm-hmm. to come and be on the radio one, and stop, I, you know, I had to move away from print and embrace broadcast, which is like a huge transition to make. And one of the things I was just so determined to do is like, I have these interviews with people and we'll talk for an hour. We'll talk for two hours. And then I can only pull like this little quote, you know, or I can pull five things that they said. And that's just not enough because these women deserve more. These people deserve more. And um, that's why I love the radio show, because we have time. We don't even have enough time. I mean, I would, I would make it way longer <laughs> if I could. If we had the resources <laughs> to pull it off, I would make it longer. Um, but hearing their voices was a huge advancement, you know, for me. And that was the generosity of women who often said no the first time. If I ask them to do a profile on them nine times out of 10, nope, not me. I'm not interesting enough. You need to talk to someone else. And I was like, no, I want to talk to you. Please say yes. And then I would convince them to say yes. I would do the story and they were remarkable. So we had women's magazines then. Um, and so that helped women see that this was a place for them and that they could step into it. It felt safe to a lot of women executives in this town, um, in the city of Sioux Falls anyway before, you know, they knew that they could have a voice too. Well, Lori, so, you know, I'm so fascinated by you telling the story of the women in the Philippines and 
mm-hmm. your comment about, you know, sometimes you just have to show up to be that one voice, even if you can't completely change the world. And then how you have encouraged all these other women to come forward with their story to bring their voice out into the open. And we see this, I'm not, in our podcasting, when we start asking guests, you know, we see this consistent theme, no matter what the successful role and how many balls are in the air that they're elegantly managing, still saying, well, you know, I don't have an interesting story. I have like nothing to tell or, you know. Yeah. So talk about how that Philippines thing of saying, I'm, I've got the courage. How have you seen that courage to step up throughout your lifetime since that moment to, even if you can't change everything, how does your voice matter? How do you know, I just have to do this now. I'm not waiting for permission. I'm not looking, I'm collecting these people. I'm bringing them in. Talk about the courage that you've had to exercise in this regard. I think the answer to that is live radio. When nobody can really stop you, there's, <laughs> there's a yeah. sense. <laughs> there, when I auditioned to be the host, when I started the show, it was called Dakota Midday. And um, I auditioned for that. My mentor at SDPB has been Kara Hetland. So I listened. You know, I went online. I listened to all their stuff. Who is this show? What? Who's hosting it? What are they doing? What are they asking? What's a good interview? What's a bad interview? I just analyzed, analyzed, analyzed. So hours listening to prepare. And then um, I did a couple interviews, I think two interviews. And then I auditioned by driving to Vermilion. I lived in Sioux Falls. I drove to Vermilion and they gave me the show. And I had to do um, one interview that they had picked that they thought would be a good, um, you know, in my, in, my, in my wheelhouse kind of interview, they picked one interview that they thought would be hard for me. And then the third interview I got to bring was whatever I wanted. So I was kind of pitching the story. I showed up three hours early and they looked at me and were like, what are you going to do for three hours? I'm like, I'm going to prepare. So I was like super prepared. And um, when I think uh, we wouldn't do that anymore, we wouldn't like have somebody audition by showing up and putting them on live radio. Uh, because what happens if they're terrible? Like it's just too much, but Kara knew I could do it. And she trusted me. If I messed up, I would just not get a job. What would have happened to her if she had like given away public radio airwaves that belong to you, belong to the people, to somebody incompetent. Right. So, (laughs) so fortunately I did well enough. I mean, it sounds terrible now compared to what I'm doing now, but I did well enough. And since then, I think there's been so many times that we just turn that microphone on and you have to go. I mean, like you have, so I, I guess I put myself in a situation where I didn't have a back door. There's no, I can't do this today in live radio. There's no, I don't feel like it. I have thrown up between, you know, on the show. I have run to the bathroom during the show. I have, you know, I've left five minutes before the show and the great Keely Bettina stepped in and she had to host the show for me. I mean, there, I've cried on the show and broken down and it just breaks down all your barriers. I can't be like fake. I don't know how to do that. Um, 
I used to compare myself to the singer Adele. Like she'd come out and she'd be like all perfect polished. And like she'd start singing and like her hair would come down and her lipstick would run off and she'd start <laughs> spitting. And I was like, that, you know, she's just herself in five minutes. <laughs> now she's got like a trainer that like helps her do better. But um, I miss that old Adele because that's me. Like once the microphone goes on, you're just going to get Lori. And so I guess authenticity, um, forcing yourself to go forward and do it, believing that you have something to say, um, having the integrity to say, we're going to say it in this way. Like this is, this is public media. We're not, we're going to raise our words, not our voices. We are going to be the voice, not the echo. Like all the things that you talk about in, in this topic are, are very public media are very, how do we have a civil conversation? How do we have impact with our journalism? So we're not just talking to fill airspace. Um, so I think all those things, but the number one thing is like, oh, don't give yourself a chance to walk out the back door, <laughs> close, close the back door. Um, there's no, there's no undo. You can't unring the bell. Once the show starts, 11 o'clock comes, 12 o'clock comes, um, and you're on, you go on because it's 12 o'clock, not because you're ready. So I just, I just love that advice, Lori, because that's just really what it is in a nutshell, of yeah. trusting what you have inside of you and then turning on the 12 o'clock, like just go yeah. without a back door. And yeah. so is there any other advice that you would give to our listeners about, I'm doing a lot of listening, I'm doing a lot of thinking, but I haven't necessarily stepped into that space of now actually putting my voice out there and having the courage to do what you just said. What advice would you give women to be able to do it? Because it's an important piece of starting to accelerate your influence. Yeah. You're never going to be ready. That's what Kara told me. I was the person who came three hours ahead to prepare for one hour of radio. And she's like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to prepare. And her point was like, you don't have three hours to prepare every day. You might have five minutes. You might know that who you're going to interview five minutes before the show. And she just said again and again, be curious listen deeply. Um, sometimes use silence. Don't be afraid of silence. So you were in the middle of conversation, somebody says something and you'll just be like, oh, that's okay. That's like a good thing. Sometimes they'll fill it in with something else. Gives your listener time to breathe. So I guess number one, you're never going to be ready. So just do it. Believe in who you are. Just start doing it. Um, have certain things that you know for sure are your home base. Like for me, it's, I'm not going to shout. I'm never going to raise my voice. Um, I am always going to be gracious and kind. I interviewed um, Kim Molson Risden, secretary of the department of health this week. And I got an email from a listener who was angry that I thanked her for answering questions and felt that I had overdone it. Like, Oh, cause I said, thank you for answering all the questions. Something like that. And they were like, that's too much. She didn't answer anything. And, and I just answered back, like, I'm always going to, I'm always going to say thank That's me. I am always going to say thank you. I am always going to treat people with dignity. If you don't like my guest because you think their words are dangerous, you are smart enough to decide that on your own. I will ask hard questions, but I will be kind. So have those few things that for you, you always fall back on. I would rather be criticized for being too nice. And I often am then be criticized for being fake, someone that I'm, I'm, I'm not. I just wasn't raised to be rude. <laughs> I just can't do it. I can't pull it <laughs> off. I, can get, I get angry. 
Um, I, be patient. You're not gonna, I've had six years, almost six years now on the radio. I hope to have many more. Knowledge is cumulative. It builds. And there's things that I know now to ask people that I never would have known before. And I go back and listen to those early interviews and I just cringe at the things I didn't know. And then I think the last thing I would say was take care of your actual voice. So do your vocal exercises. <laughs> Drain. I do vocal exercises every day to take care of your instrument because it is an instrument and you can wreck it. So if you are, you know, leading a, um, a meeting, you're a corporate you know, speaker, you're a presenter, you're an author, you're a singer, singers probably already know, but anybody who's speaking and using their voice in, other in front of other people, you have to take care of it or it will be gone. So, or you will damage it and it will change. So every day I do vocal exercises and I do a lot of vocal rest. So on the weekends, I don't do a lot of talking. And I don't do, sometimes I feel guilty, like I'm being a diva, but um, sometimes I'll just tell everybody, like, I'm not, I'm not talking today. Like, you guys lead the conversation. I'll, I'll nod. They all roll their eyes at me, like, oh, there she goes again. I'm like, well, whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm paid to talk. So, um, so yeah, take good care of that voice. Don't shout. Don't raise it at a rock concert. Don't scream for your kid. I always go, <laughs> pretend I'm screaming. <laughs> My daughter looks at me. She's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you didn't cheer for me because you didn't want to wreck your voice. I'm like, mm, sorry. <laughs> That's why you have a tortoise instead of a dog. You don't have to ever have to yell at it. <laughs> don't raise my voice to my pets. Yeah. I have a quiet little tortoise. Oh, how much oh, you're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you're amazing in how you use your voice. Yeah. Mm. Boy, I'll tell you what. You have just, um, you've certainly inspired me today. Just your stories are going to resonate for a long time. And I know that they're going to resonate with our listeners as well. So we just can't thank you enough, Lori. Um, and I feel a little guilty, like making you use your voice on a weekend. Like, I, feel like we need to give you, I need to send you some lozenges or something. To, <laughs> I'm fine. Take my water. <laughs> okay. Well, we Lots just really water. not appreciate only your words, but we just appreciate you as an individual and as a person. So um, yeah. thanks for joining us today. And, uh, it, it means a lot that you took the time. The, the work that you guys are doing, I mean, think about, you know, I've said it on in the moment and I'll say it here again. During the pandemic, having your voices in my ear, sometimes when I'm quiet, that can be boring. And I would, I would come home, I couldn't read, I was just burned out of everything. And I would come home and I would lay on my couch and I would put my headphones in. And I would just listen to your voices and the voices of the people that you brought together. There is something so powerful about the human voice telling a story. And you do that incredibly well. I would not have survived the pandemic. I don't know what would have happened to me, but the, you were my friends during, during that time. So um, what you're doing is really remarkable. And I hope you keep doing it for a long, long time to come. Oh, thanks, Lori. Or Thank you, you so much. Pandemic, Lori. pandemic, or uh, sans pandemic, we're always going to be right. there. Sans you just, pandemic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sans pandemic. Yeah. Mm. So to all of our listeners, um, um, we're just so thankful you joined us. We we know that we've all learned a lot today about being able to use our voices, but also about listening deeply. And so we hope that you listen well, that you speak well, and that you'll join us again for another episode of Influential She. Thanks for tuning in. 
If you enjoyed our podcast, we'd be so jazzed if you rate us on whatever app you use to find us. And hey, be sure to tell all your friends about Influential She. And please visit us at InfluentialShe.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And you know what? If you come up with a new one, please let us know. In the meantime, remember, stay influential. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.